title for today's talk is Life as Practice. One possible reaction to this suggestion of looking at life as practice is, well, isn't life complicated enough? Aren't we busy enough? I mean, all right, I'm going to do half an hour, maybe an hour sit a day, but, but the rest of the day I have to deal with all kinds of stuff. How can I, on top of that, do practice? And that reaction is, is certainly understandable. I suggest that it doesn't apply. It doesn't apply because by bringing practice into life, instead of adding more stuff, we disburden ourselves. We find a way, hopefully, to unclutter our lives rather than add to them, to that. Because we begin to discover discover ways of bringing to an end the constant construction and fabrication that, that weighs our life down. So this, in the first part of this talk, I'll try to clarify what I mean by construction and fabrication, which you surely have a sense of, but want to point out very concretely to that as a reminder of what it is that we tend to do with our lives. And in the second part, I'll explore ways of putting an end to that, to that burdening, burdening of our lives. So what do I mean by construction, by fabrication? There's, of course, a a very concrete material aspect to that, including the building of our houses, the the building of our careers, the education of our children, all that is their forms of, of building. Even getting a car. We don't construct the car ourselves, but we, you know, we do things to pay for it, and so on. And of course, this is, these are very appropriate ways of of dealing with uh, what comes our way, and ways of generating an income that will allow us to do what we need to do. This is all very well, but side by side with this external and, and to some extent, necessary construction, what goes on, sometimes unnoticed, is an internal construction. It's a, it's an, a mental activity that supports, in strange ways, that construction. One 
very clear manifestation of this internal, inner or mental construction is the dialogue we engage in about it, or I should say inner monologue very often, other times a social dialogue. Defining the agenda for our lives. Again, all this to some extent is appropriate, except that often enough it takes over. Instead of being this dialogue, this agenda, just a support for what we need to do, what we need to plan, how we are going to develop, help our children go to college or, or whatever, develop our skills. The dialogue itself becomes becomes the, the focus of our activity. Becomes more important than the actions themselves that this dialogue is supposed to inform. Say, I define this or that desire, wish to have, to possess an object, um, a knowledge, another person, whatever. Very often, very much too often, the desire becomes more important than the object. And we see that so clearly when we get our object and we're not interested in that at all. It was the pursuance of the agenda that mattered. How can that be? The teachings are very, very clear on that, very explicit. And and the teaching I'm referring to particularly is the teaching so-called of dependent origination. Very, and this teaching says, without going to details, that when we try to grasp something, we try to cling to something, in doing that, we create the clinger. The clinging makes a clinger. And so much so that easy enough, the object of the clinging is the fabrication of the clinger rather than the clinging itself. And I see myself with with the hand holding, grasping something as I was talking. The hand is attached to the arm, the arm is attached to the grasper. There's no grasping without a grasper. So, the, the, the habit is ingrained, and it's been certainly there for at least 2,500 years, because the Buddha talked very clearly about that. But from desire, we create the I. 
So, if we look at this relentless inner monologue that, that seems to generate itself within us, it's easy to see that this inner monologue is actually fabricating a world, a world at the center of which it's I, it's we. And, and that inner monologue soon replaces the reality of things. We take this monologue with inner monologue as what's real. Sometimes in relationships, partners, with children, etc. Suddenly we are shocked that our partner, our children, do not follow the dictates of this monologue. Because we've taken this monologue as the way things are. Of course, the other person has done the same, but we're there in the monologue. And the class is um, inevitable. But much of the purpose of this is the creation of our own identity. Here I want to bring an example of something I know very little of. In fact, I only know a little bit about this by peeking over the shoulder of two of my youngest granddaughters, Maya and Gabby, uh, Manuel's uh, sisters, who have uh, of late been very keen on playing a computer game called The Sims. Any of you familiar with that? So, uh, you know, I've seen them do it. I've never played it, I have to admit. So here's uh, some stuff that I downloaded from some publicity about The Sims. You, with this game, by the way, the, the first the earlier game, I think, is called Sims City or something like that. And now this is the second stage of it. With the Sims, you'll create and control people. <laughs> Build the home of your dreams with powerful architectural design tools. Decorate walls and floors in any style. Create your own private paradise with landscaping tools. Buy hot tubs, swimming pools, topiaries, whatever that is, pool tables, giant screen TVs of 100 different, 150 different objects, etc. Live, live, this live. Create an endless variety of characters and family. Follow a wide range of career paths. Make friends, have conversations. Insult neighbors. <laughs> Didn't know that was so important. Fall in love. Have children. Etc. Here's a, a little more about it. The latest simulation game from the makers of SimCity, The Sims, places you squarely in control of the lives, loves, joys, and sorrows of a community of virtual human beings. We are becoming that too, you know. 
This digital men and women built from the ground up by you laugh, cry, tickle, kiss, and even dance in place when you've waited too long between bathroom breaks. Once you've created a family, you need to buy a house to put them in, find them jobs, and buy food, furniture, and other items to keep them happy and healthy. The status panel at the bottom of the screen keeps you appraised of their wants, needs, and moods, including states of their bladders, stomachs, even hygiene, etc. etc. When left to their own resources, these all-too-human characters wander around aimlessly, belching more often than seems healthy. In the Sims world, there's never a question of how you're getting along with people. When one of our Sims interacts with another, relationship icons materialize above their head containing plus signs, things are going great, or minus signs, I really should be going. The Sims not content merely to be a triumphal of ga- triumph of gaming artistry also reveals life to be what it is, a glorified pursuit of food and love punctuated by frequent trips to the loo. Whether in life or in games like this and many others, of course, very often what we actually go for, the true, the actual pursuit that we engage in, is a pursuit of identity. What sort of alternative does a spiritual practice offer? It is not that the spiritual practice tells us to stop these games in life or in playing. None at all. It's not a question of even stopping the inner dialogue. None at all. It's a question of actually listening to it in a way that we can understand what it is about. And through looking at our own experience, see what is it that causes suffering to us and what alleviates the suffering. So, and certainly it's not a question of suppressing or ignoring what goes on, but actually to see things as they're actually happening. And certainly a very good example of that in this retreat are the things that are shared and the insights that are shared in the parental discussion groups. There's one sutta, one scripture in the Buddhist scripture 
in the Samyutta Nikaya, that's the name of a collection of scriptures, that I recently discovered and I'm particularly fond of. It's called the Kimsuka tree. Well, apparently, the Kimsuka tree is a tree that presents itself differently at different times of the year, like many other trees, of course. And so, in this sutta, the Buddha describes how four different people... Ah, pardon me. One person asks, what is a Kimsuka tree? And by the way, Kimsuka means, in Pali, what is it? <laughs> what is the what is it tree? And four people meet this person and give completely different answers. One says, it's blackish, like a charred stump. The other says, it's reddish, like a piece of meat. Third one says, it has strips of bark hanging and, and burst pods, like an acacia. And the fourth one says, oh, this tree, it has plenty of foliage, full of leaves, like a banyan tree. So, it's a, a little bit like that Japanese film, Rashomon, some of you may remember, where one story is seen by different people, it becomes completely different stories. Now, I, the Buddha and I suggest in Rashomon-like fashion, he doesn't say that any one of these four people is right or anyone is wrong, nor does he say that the composite of all this is right or wrong. He says, these four ways illustrate four ways how we can see reality. And from Whichever of those ways we see reality, it's from there that we have to learn. Or as this sutra says, to purify our minds. Then the sutra moves on to another metaphor. That's um, quite beautiful and a little involved, but I, I think it's clear enough. Again, following the footsteps of the Kimsuka tree story. Here's what the Buddha says. Uh, he's talking to a bhikkhu who asked him about this. Suppose, bhikkhu is a, a monk, of course. Suppose, bhikkhu, a king had a frontier city with strong ramparts, walls, and arches, and with six gates. The gatekeeper posted there would be wise, competent, and intelligent, one who keeps out strangers and admits acquaintances. So we have a city with a wall, gates, and gatekeepers. A swift pair of messengers 
would come from the east and ask the gatekeeper, Where, good man, is the lord of the city? The gatekeeper would reply, He is sitting in the central square. Then the swift pair of messengers would deliver a message of reality to the lord of the city and leave by the route by which they had arrived. Similarly, messengers would come from the west, from the south, and from the north, deliver the message, and leave by the route by which they had arrived. Now, the Buddha deciphers this uh, simile. I have made up this simile, Bhikkhu, in order to convey a meaning. This is the meaning here. The city, this is a designation for this body, consisting of the four great elements, originating from mother and father, built up of boiled rice and oatmeal, subject to impermanence, it depends, of course, subject to impermanence, being worn, to being worn and rubbed away, yes, to breaking away apart, breaking apart and dispersal, yes. Yes, this is what I add. <laughs> the six gates, this is a designation for the six internal sense bases. In other words, whatever they are, see if I remember. <laughs> sight, sight, sound, taste, smell, hearing, and the connection with the contents of the mind. So, the six gates are the senses, the six senses. The gatekeeper, this is a designation for mindfulness. So mindfulness tells us what to watch and what not to watch, really. The swift pair of messengers. This is the designation for serenity and insight. So I, I visualize, although the Buddha doesn't say, this serenity and insights holding hands and coming from all four directions. Because the two have to be paired. It's very important. Serenity and insight are paired. One helps the other. Deliver this message. And the message is, of course, the insights. The Lord of the city. This is a designation for consciousness. The central square. This is a designation for the four great elements, the earth element, the water element, the heat element, and the air element. A message of reality. This is a designation for Nibbana. I'm, hopefully I'm not contradicting what the Buddha said when he said insight. Nibbana is an ultimate insight, if you wish. But in, in a way, in this description, with different messengers coming from different directions, is bits of Nirvana or Nibbana that are picked up by the Lord of the city, namely consciousness. The route by which they had arrived, this is the designation for the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, see, this metaphor, together with the Kimsuka tree, is delivering a powerful message that I want to emphasize here. 
Both the Kimsuka tree has different aspects seen by different people and you learn from each one of them. And with this pairs of swift pair of messengers, they also come from four different directions, symbolic of the variety of experiences that we can have in life. And the noble-eightful path is not the same for all. We, we go through this path of enlightenment whichever way our life takes us. So, this is really why it's so explicitly said in the sutras that we have to learn from the experience of the path that we have gone through, which starts, of course, in our family of origin, includes our growing up, and includes our creating a new family. And we have to learn each aspect of that life in each stage of our existence. So, every time we look at what we construct in our mind, what do we What we've become at times imprisoned in in our life. Through inner dialogue, through social dialogue, or through whatever shortcomings we have. We need to observe where we are, whether we suffer or we don't suffer. And we need to see in those circumstances, including in each one of our children, very specially in each one of our children, and for Raquel and me and for other grandchildren as well. We have to, to see in them the messengers of reality. That's the reality that we have to see. If we look carefully, if our, our two messengers keep holding hands, uh, insight and serenity are there, if mindfulness is there to, to help us select what to look at, we have a very good chance of seeing how is it that we often, much too often, fabricate suffering for ourselves. Fabricate an eye that has nowhere to go but down. And, and give ourselves an opportunity to pay attention of, to how we do that so that we may have an, an opportunity to unclutter our lives. 
The messengers come in the moment. They come at each moment. It's, uh, it's not much that we can do by reconstructing the previous experiences. We need to pay attention to things right now in the present. Also, it's in the present that constructions lose the illusory solidity. Some words from the Buddha. Let not a person revive the past or on the future builds his hopes or her hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see its presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it invincibly and So, with insight, and maybe with a serenity as well. No, surely that's implicit. With insight, let be with every arisen state, no matter whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, no matter whether a child going into a tantrum or hugging us and telling us how much they love us. No matter. Each presently arisen state. Nothing to substitute for it. And let him, her, know that and be sure of it invincibly and shakeably. This is what's happening. That, just that. My child has come lovingly to me, embraces me. Can we actually and totally feel that? No expectation that it's going to be the same the next moment. Probably it won't. Receive that. Those are the messengers that come through the six gates of the city. And our consciousness is the Lord that receives a message. The varying messages, always changing messages. As we are present, and I repeat that now because it's important to emphasize this, as we are present with experience, then there's nowhere to build, build the habitual constructions 
which rely on past and future, which project what's going to happen the next moment. Just open up to whatever is happening. And we, we discover space of peace and openness that is available to us unconditionally, regardless of whatever. So that we can be, as Pablo Neruda says, more of the earth, más tierra cada día. Like to closing, I'd like to share a poem that I'm very fond of by Neruda. It's a Chilean poet. Strange enough, he, he never claimed to be a Buddhist on the country. He was a militant communist, which was not easy for him to be, but anyway. But um, in his youth, somehow, heaven knows why, he was given the job of being consul of Chile in Rangoon. And we're talking about Rangoon in the early last century, you know. I mean, somehow, it's, I, I don't know, they didn't probably they had to pay a political favor, I suppose, and send him there, get rid of him, whatever. <laughs> well, it was incredible because he picked up a, a lot of understanding. Anyway, here's a poem. I'll just read part of it. In Spanish, it's called Aquí Vivimos. This is where we live. I'm grateful to the earth for having waited for me when sky and sea came together like two lips touching. For that's no small thing, no? to have lived through one solitude to arrive at another, to feel myself many things and recover wholeness. I love all the things they are. And of all the fire, of all fires, love is the only inexhaustible one. And that's why I go from life to life, from guitar to guitar, and I have no fear of light or of shade. Or of shade. And almost being earth myself, I spoon away at infinity. So no one can fail to find my doorless, numberless house there between dark stones facing the flash of the violent salt 
There I live, my woman and I. There we take root. Help. Help. Come help us. Help us to be more earth each day. Help us to be more of the sacred form. More of the swish of the wave. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.